Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. More than a billion people worldwide live in extreme poverty. While the number has dropped in half over the last 20 years, much remains to be done to reach the zero zone. In today's podcast episode, Lawrence Chandy, a fellow in Brookings Global Economy and Development Program, looks ahead to the prospect of eradicating extreme global poverty, how we measure it, and what we can do about it. Lawrence Chandy, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me here. We're going to talk about the issue of extreme global poverty. Let's start off with listening to a portion of President Obama's State of the Union address earlier this year. We also don't know that progress in the most impoverished parts of our world enriches us all. Not only because it creates new markets, more stable order in certain regions of the world, but also because it's the right thing to do. You know, in many places, people live on little more than a dollar a day. So the United States will join with our allies to eradicate such extreme poverty in the next two decades by connecting more people to the global economy, by empowering women, by giving our young and brightest minds new opportunities to serve, and helping communities to feed, empower, and educate themselves, by saving the world's children from preventable deaths, and by realizing the promise of an AIDS-free generation, which is within our reach. Eradicate extreme poverty in the next two decades. How do you react to that? Well, I think it's a very bold goal um, and um, one which is far from guaranteed. But there is also um, an emerging consensus within the, the global development community that it's, um, it's the right, it's a, a good goal to have and one w- which, um, which is feasible if we, uh, with, if we had the right combination of, you know, of luck and, um, and a lot of hard work. So in the last few months, we've also seen the World Bank come, up with a t- come out with a target, uh, setting up uh, the goal of uh, bringing extreme poverty down to, three, uh, down to 3% by 2030. Um, and we've seen other organizations um, line up behind that goal. We saw a, a high-level panel report um, um, for the uh, post-2015 development agenda also uh, state this target of ending extreme poverty. So there's certainly momentum behind this goal. Um, but as I say, it's ambitious. We've had a lot of progress in, um, redu- in reducing extreme poverty over the last decade. And, and it's that progress which is, which is really making people confident that, that, it's a, that ending poverty is within our reach. But... It's one thing to say that we've had to um, to say that we've had fast progress in the past. It's another thing to say we can continue that in the future. That's partly because uh, it's hard to often replicate the successes of the past. So in the last decade, we've had fantastically fast growth in the developing world. There's no guarantees that will continue. But it's also because even if we do succeed in replicating the success of the last decade, that probably won't be enough to get us to to zero. It's going to require new new approaches and new efforts to get us. Um, uh, close to that zero mark. So that would include bringing to an end some of the persistent conflicts in, the, in, the, in low-income countries, bringing marginalized communities into the orbit of their economies, better targeting of the extreme poor. These are all things which we haven't done very well in the past and we're going to have to do if we're going to get any, anywhere close to that goal of zero. You've called it extreme poverty. Others talk about extreme poverty. Is that a distinction uh, that we need to focus on here? And if so, what is that distinction versus poverty generally? So the the term extreme poverty um, refers to the dollar twenty five level. Dollar that's that that means that if someone lives on less than a dollar twenty five, 
a day, they're considered, uh, considered extreme poor, extremely poor. So I don't think anyone would argue that if someone lived on a dollar thirty a day, or two dollars, or five dollars even, or dollar twenty six, um, right, or, or even ten dollars perhaps, $10. that they wouldn't be considered poor. Um, but we have this international extreme poverty line, and I think it's a, a useful and and an salient one. And the 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 salience that line is that it it meaningfully cap it helps us to meaningfully capture progress and in an unbiased way. So there, are, and the reason for that is, is that there are lots of people still below that line. As we know, there are more than a billion people living on less than dollar twenty-five today, and they, a lot of them are very far below it. They're not just living on a dollar twenty. Some of them are living on fifty cents or sixty cents. And so long as there 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 are people far below that line, and there are many people below the line, I think that I think uh, I think it complete uh, uh, the line continues to have um, relevance. Also, the progress we've seen in moving people out of a dollar twenty-five poverty has been broadly re- reflected in other poverty lines too. So in the last decade, um, just over half a billion people have moved above the dollar twenty-five line. Well, at the same time, around half a billion people have moved above, above the two dollar um, a day line. We're never going to see see the same kind of rates of progress across all lines at the same time, um, because the distribution of uh, of income um, is uh, is unequal across the world, and uh, and it's and it's lumpy. And we might talk about that a bit more later, but. One one criticism I've heard of the dollar twenty five line is that it it forces us to focus on these extreme poor at the expense of those who say, like you say, are at dollar twenty six. And I, I I don't buy that. I mean, if, if the if the global community wants to eliminate extreme poverty, it's going to care about people at dollar twenty six because those people are at enormous risk of falling back down. When we talk about people living on a dollar twenty five a day, they're not literally living on a dollar twenty five every day. They're they're mo- they're oscillating around that mark. Their um, their income is lumpy. They face great uncertainty. They face small shocks um, on a on a very regular basis, so the the vulnerability of falling back below dollar twenty five is so high when you're only a little bit above the line that a a focus on ending dollar twenty five poverty really means a focus on on all those living um, up to maybe two or three dollars. So anyway, we have we have the line. It's uh, there's nothing particularly special about it, but I think it's a useful um, um, sort of benchmark to have, and it really. And it's something which people can relate to. It means exactly what it says. So, try and imagine living on only a dollar twenty-five a day. I couldn't, so. buy a, I couldn't buy a latte for that. Right, right. And so, you know, we're, there are lots of complicated things we have to do to try and um, measure accurately what it might mean in a poor country to um, to live on, a, on only a dollar twenty-five because the the cost of living is different in different places. But we make various adjustments for that. But it, it is it is what it says. Some people um, can't even believe that anyone could survive on that amount of money. But I assure you, they do. And, and it provides a, as you said, a benchmark uh, by which you and other social scientists measure right. uh, impacts of interventions of progress. Right. Right. Uh, recently, Bill Gates tweeted a link to your chart from your report called "The Final Countdown: mm-hmm. Prospects for Ending Extreme Poverty by 2030." Yeah. And uh, the report is very much about how do we measure. Uh, global poverty, mm. eradication, progress. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, the chart that he yeah. was pointing out and yeah. uh, some of the other findings in this report? Sure. So the the chart which Bill Gates very kindly tweeted um, firstly shows this rapid progress we've had over the last 20 years, which has enabled us to meet this global goal we have of of halving extreme poverty from the 1990 level 
um, which where, where it stood at around just over 40 percent. It was around 43 percent of the population of the developing world lived on less than $1.25 in 1990. We're now down to around 21 percent. So it shows that that rapid reduction. And then it shows what might happen in the next 20 years. So it, it's, it shows a number of scenarios which we developed, which um, provides a range of, of the kind of outcomes we, we, we expect to happen um, or could happen. And it shows that that, that zero zone of, you know, of getting close to zero is within the range of possibilities. And in a subsequent chart, what we show is that something really interesting which was born out from our research, which, um, um, which is that if you, if you lined up everyone in the world by how much they, how much they consumed every day, so the poorest person was on, was on the other far end and the richest person was on the other end. And you asked people to stand on each other's heads if they had exactly the same amount of consumption per day. You'd end up with this, with this, this um, density function, a chart where the highest height is where the most, uh, where reflects where most people are consuming at the same level. So we produced these charts and we found this really interesting thing, which is that at the moment, the, the highest point of that chart is at $1.25. So there are more people living on $1.25 than there are at any other income level in the world right now. And that's, that, that's never been true in the past, and it won't be true again in the future. I hope it won't be true again in the future. So it's, a, it's this momentary point, and there's, there's real significance to that because it means that if we have equitable growth in the world, you're going to see more people moving across the $1.25 line than moving across any other arbitrary line. There's the the potential for poverty reduction right now is 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 very strong, and the you know as as we look into the future, the highest point will be beyond the dollar twenty five line, and so you probably won't have so many people crossing the um, crossing over the the dollar twenty five poverty line uh, for the same amount of uh, same amount of global economic growth, but it just shows that that, that this really is a, a very unique point in time where we had this great concentration of people around the poverty line and small improvements in their livelihoods will result in, in, in them moving out of extreme poverty. Like we said before, they won't notice it because if, if they move from $1.20 to $1.30, they're not going to be celebrating. But it does represent progress and important progress. Will that line need to shift over time yeah. to $4 to $5 as, yeah. to redefine what extreme poverty yeah. is over time? Yeah. I think so. Um, I think that the... Well, firstly, I should say that individual countries use their own poverty lines. They don't all they don't all use this dollar twenty five line. This is something we use for for you know for for global assessments and to help us think about how we should allocate global resources. Uh, but countries come up with their own poverty lines, and they range to some which are lower than the dollar twenty five line, and some which are higher. By the way, the the origins of the dollar twenty five line are that it's um, it's the average of the poverty lines we see in the very poorest countries in the world. Um, the average of the poorest 15 countries. So that gives you, you know, so there aren't, there aren't many countries which have poverty lines far below $1.25. We often see um, the $2 poverty line measured, which is one which is considered more um, generally applicable to the developing world. Um, and then in rich countries, you see poverty lines up at $10 or more, um, sometimes much more. I think that the uh, one interesting um, recommendation from the high-level panel report on the post-2015 development agenda was that we that by the time it gets to twenty thirty we might want to shift to a global poverty line of two dollars so that that suggests that perhaps you know our our tolerance of poverty will um, will diminish and you know our expectations of of where the minimum standard of living should um, should rise and that's only and that's only fair but I go back to my earlier point that 
so long as there are more than a billion people living below this dollar twenty-five line, to me, it seems very salient indeed. But poverty is not distributed evenly across countries, and it's also not distributed evenly across age groups. I, I saw a right. figure that said something like four hundred million children right. are living in yeah. extreme poverty. Yeah. Can you talk about the uneven distribution and what that matters or what that means for poverty eradication? We don't know very much about what goes on within individual households. So when we measure poverty, we we usually ask a representative of the household to tell us what's going on in their in their um, household unit. So you know we we we're not good at getting at discrimination within the, within the home, which may especially affect um, women or the disabled or or, um, or children. What we do know quite well is how patterns of poverty uh, differ within countries, where you often see large pockets of poverty in particular regions, often where there's um, some localized conflict, for example. And then we see big differences in the prevalence and the depth of poverty from one country to another. So, you know, one of the things which I've, I've written about this year is the uh, the depth of poverty in Africa. So when I say when I say depth of poverty, I mean that people are living very far below the poverty line. So let me let me spit out some numbers at you. So the if you go back to 1980, the average extremely poor person in Africa lived on 70 cents. So of those people who lived below dollar twenty five, they lived on 70 cents per day. On, on, yeah, on, on average, the average poor person. Today it's still 70 cents. Now in Africa. Now if you go outside of Africa to the rest of the developing world, in 1980 the average was 70 cents, but today it's 97 cents, or maybe maybe a dollar if we update our figures a bit more. So the the poor in Africa, many of them are very far below the poverty line. In, in fact, extreme the term extreme poverty doesn't seem to do justice to the to the depth of their poverty, and and the depth of poverty hasn't been improving. So there are many people who live very far below uh, the dollar twenty-five line, and it's hard to imagine um, them getting to a dollar twenty-five very soon without some kind of special intervention. Because even if they make gradual process, it's a long way to get to that line. In your report, you talked about the population of Chinese poor people is larger than the U.S. population, but they're making great progress in eradicating and moving people beyond that dollar twenty-five line. Mm. India as well, mm. but the the, uh, the the so-called fireman's helmet. Right. distribution chart that you spoke of yeah. is not moving like that for Africa. Right. Why do you think that is? Why is Africa having such a struggle with this problem? I think this is a really interesting question and one which a, a lot of people are now working on. And I'll, I don't know if I'll be able to give a, a definitive answer, but I can, I can throw some more numbers at you, which I think might help. So you hear, you hear mixed stories in Africa. You hear what you just described, which is how and what I was describing earlier, that Africa is you know, being left behind. And then you hear these great stories about Africa, about the fact that Africa's growth has taken off and um, there are booming economies and there is investment pouring into the continent. Uh, you've done research on the mobile money phenomenon. Right. So in the, the, there are, um, one of the great things about aspects of that is that people who have traditionally been seen as completely marginalized, cut off from the rest of um, from their economies and now in touch by cell phones can ping money around um, with vir a virtually no transaction cost. So even if they're really remote, well, their, their cousin goes and works in the city and sends them some money on the weekend and you know, within a few seconds it arrives on their phone. You know, the, so, uh, so really changing the, the nature of what it means to, um, to be poor actually um, in, in, in some low-income countries. But here, so here, let me give you some numbers. In the last decade, Africa's economies as a whole have grown at around 6% a year on aggregate. 
that's pretty good, right? We're used to in the US thinking about, you know, hoping the US economy can grow at 2% a year, right? So 6% sounds good. Now, Africa's population is growing fast. So that translates into around 3% uh, growth per year in the consumption of any individual, okay? Now, I told you before that the average poor, extremely poor person in Africa lived on 70 cents. Now, if they, if someone on 70 cents sees their consumption grow at 3% every year for around 20 years, that brings them to $1.25. And you start to think, hey, that looks pretty good. The average poorest person in Africa, if they can keep that, if they can keep up that rate of growth in the last decade, they're going to get out of poverty just by 20, you know, by, by around 2030. That's pretty good. The trouble is we're talking entirely here um, um, in terms of averages. So I told you that on average, Africa's economies are growing at 6% a year. The trouble is, is that there are around a dozen economies in Africa where consumption has gone backwards in the last decade, right? And then I also told you that the average poor person in Africa lived on 70 cents. Well, half of the extreme poor in Africa live on below 70 cents, right? That's why it's the average. So, so there are, around, there are 400, million, 400 million people in Africa who live on less than $1.25 a day at the moment. 200 million of them live on less than 70 cents. Of those 200 million, half of those are living in countries which are growing really, really slowly. So they don't just, it's not just that they have too far to travel to get to the poverty line, mm. it's that it's taken them too long because they're traveling too slowly in the first place, right? And so, so Africa's success is, is real, but it's a story of aggregates. And once you get behind those and you start to look at individual countries, individual subregions, things don't always look as good. Um, the one other thing I'd, one other number I'll give you on this, I keep um, honing, honing in on this point about the depth of poverty in Africa. So I just told you that one in two of Africa's extreme poor um, live on less than 70 cents, say, right? Outside of Africa, the rest of the developing world, it's only one in eight live on less than 70 cents, right? So, so the... Um, so I think that's a that's a really I think that's a sort of a, a very compelling way of showing how much as I say how much further the poor are going to have to travel. But it's particularly problematic in those places where the people aren't travelling in the first place because they're in, in economies which are just um, stagnant. So let's shift then to what can be done about this. You've written about two competing visions for eradicating extreme poverty. What are right. those? So I. This is a piece I wrote a few weeks ago about, um, which was a response to some new numbers which came out of India. There's some really jaw-dropping, um, very positive poverty numbers which, which were published uh, this summer, which showed that um, around 100 million people appear to have escaped poverty in, Afri- in, in India. Sorry, within the space of a couple of years. I mean, that's that's you know that's that's just stunning. You mm-hmm. don't see numbers like that very often. And it immediately sparked this really feisty debate in the Indian press um, about what had caused this, right? So part of it was people wanting to say it was me, but part of it was people wanting to say it wasn't you. Um, and this is partly because the elections are coming up in, in India, but it's, it's also just a, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating result and it demands an explanation. So there were two broad explanations provided. One was, this is all down to India's rapid growth. It's... Um, which has slowed down admittedly in the last in the last couple of years, but India's economy was you know was 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 growing rapidly over the first decade of this century, and the argument is that that growth has been sufficiently inclusive that it's created jobs and that poor people have benefited from that they're 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 taking home more money more people in the household are getting jobs maybe maybe their individual salaries are going up there's more opportunities for them to make money. The alternative explanation is that it's because of the 
the the gradual construction of a safety net in India, which is guaranteeing individuals um, subsidized food. It's actually it's actually guaranteeing them work as well if they if they want it, and that this this establishment of a safety net is what's basically bringing up you know dragging up the poorest um, people from India um, up above the poverty line, and so this. This uh, choice, this this choice um, between inclusive growth and safety net, is, you know, can be applied more broadly. So when we think about poverty reduction um, at a, in a global level, we have, and this is all a bit rough and ready, but we have two possible paths paths to which someone's going to see their consumption each day move from, as I say, let's you know, ninety cents to a to a dollar fifty. Either they're going to um, see their income increase because of labour income or non labour income. Non-labor income could be subsidies, some remittances. It could be some kind of just. A, it could just be a social transfer. But if we have these two different choices. So I ask in the paper, if we're going to ex- eliminate extreme poverty across the world, which way we're we going to do it? We're going to do it through the include through through um, through jobs and labor income, or through this non-labor income path. And thankfully, there's a there's a really nice piece of research by the World Bank which looked at. Around a dozen countries over the last decade, which recorded very fast um, poverty reduction, and did some nice analysis to show what the contributions were of these two different sources of income um, in those countries to explain uh, how they made progress. And the results are it's it's a bit of a crapshoot, right? So some countries labouring income plays the dominant role; others, it's non-labouring income. Most, it's a bit of both. Um, so. That that tells you that both are probably a bit important, but it doesn't tell you that much about what's going to happen next because because just just because this happened in the last uh, decade for a dozen countries, who knows what um, what will happen for other countries in the next twenty years? So what I I begin to explore, but it's a you know a huge question which can't easily be answered, is what do the prospects look like for inclusive growth in the developing world in the next twenty years, and what do the prospects look like for building stronger, more inclusive, more comprehensive safety nets? And I think that's, um, as I say, it's, these are these are big questions, and then they involve lots of spo- uh, lots of speculation. If you uh, try, uh, want to tr- uh, try and provide a uh, a compelling uh, answer, what I argue is that the there is right now um, a, a quite um, interesting debate taking place among economists about whether the developing world, especially emerging markets, but developing economies more broadly, whether we're going to see them continue to grow very rapidly in the next few years. And the jury's really out on, uh, really out on that. There's, no, there's no, um, no consensus. I would argue that we've seen massive improvements in the in sort of basic economic management mm-hmm. in throughout the developing world. You don't really hear stories of hyperinflation anymore. You don't have these countries just cycling from crisis to crisis like used to be true in the past. Right. You don't, you know, um, thanks to debt relief, you, um, most low-income countries have uh, very low levels of debt, which seem very sustainable. Um, so, so that's all much improved and seems to have been, you know, seems to have provided a good foundation for growth. But there are important questions about whether, um, about how technology is altering the prospects for uh, for for jobs, especially for for non, you know, for unskilled uh, jobs throughout the world, and about how the process of globalization is is. Um, which is you know, continuing to to um, to evolve alters the, um, the the prospects for growth in in different parts of the world. On the on the safety net side of things, we've also had some real innovation. So, in since the um, in, you know, starting in the late 90s in Latin America, we've had large scale 
cash transfer programs established by governments, um, providing um, poor households with an, uh, um, a, a guaranteed income. We've seen we've seen a, a lot of countries out the world, tens and tens of countries, um, try and replicate uh, those kind of programs, including in Africa. And the results of those have generally been quite positive. The, the, the perhaps the most surprising success is that. Um, it doesn't seem to require a great deal of institutional or administrative capacity to be able to establish these kind of programs. So they've even been tested in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, seem to have worked fairly well. And then we've seen some really creative stuff, which is the, the which is NGOs, actors other than government, using these cash transfers. So there's this particular charity which people are very excited about at the moment called Give Directly, which enables someone like you or I to go online, um, donate some money. And they ping some money through mo- through the mobile money device you mentioned earlier to a poor household living in rural Kenya, who suddenly you know, received this windfall of cash. No, it's just giving this person cash. It's giving them it's cash. It's not for a particular project. I use Kiva. Right. dot org to give uh, right to specific projects. Right. So this is this. We, they, no no questions asked. Okay. No conditions applied other than the, other than um, some effort to make sure that the. Um, that the re- the recipients are very poor in the first place, which they're able to mm-hmm. um, they're able to establish with quite a high degree of confidence. And there's been some recent evaluations of the of the um, of the impact of, uh, of of their work. And actually, they just they were just uh, formally released last week, and the, the results are, are, are pretty impressive and perhaps not surprising, right? Um, the um, these individuals spend some of the money on on consumption, which they need, but they spend a lot on investing in in Incoming opportunities in their homes, um, in ways which help them smooth their consumption over time, and there are also some really interesting uh, positive results which need to be you know explored further. But how these cash transfers might improve the lives of these people beyond um, uh, sort of monetary and uh, material measures, so lower levels of stress, um, lower levels of domestic violence, all kinds of interesting results. But when I spoke earlier about the the challenge of reducing poverty in, say, conflict zones. In those kind of places, it's hard to expect the government to establish uh, the uh, um, safety nets but look, or in poorly governed countries. But if they're, if they're non-government actors who want to step in, well, you know, great. I mean, it's a really interesting innovation and be interesting to see in the next few years um, whether it's uh, copied by others and, and whether it grows. What about the role of traditional aid agencies and how well do they target the poor? Um. It's a, it's a good question. The aid agencies have have traditionally um, been able to be quite choosy in where they work because they're, if you go back not many years, um, there were a lot of low-income countries to choose from and lots of needs out there. And so donors could be quite, aid agencies could be quite picky in saying, well, I want to work in places where um, where you know I have a reliable partner in a, you know, in a, a government who seems to be um, committed to um, tackling poverty in the country, low levels of corruption, and maybe in a place where my staff don't mind being sent out to work for a few years. Um, and so, you, so th- this is this is this is why we have we had the phenomenon which was donor darlings. So, um, donor uh, these were these were low income countries which all donors love to um, love to work in, and donors would queue up to um, to establish offices in these countries and to have photo opportunities to. Um, Show the, show the success they want to be associated with. Now things are becoming a bit more tricky because donors are being forced to be a bit more picky in where they work um, because a lot of countries have graduated from low-income status and poverty is becoming more 
it's uh, it's becoming more concentrated in smaller numbers of places. We've traditionally thought about to what extent aid agencies target the poor in terms of the countries they give money to, but as we get closer to zero, we we need to look beyond the country as a unit of analysis. And one of the things which I did with a couple of colleagues earlier this year is to see if we could make use of geocoded data. This is, this is a, a new trend among some donors to um, to map exactly where they are um, providing their aid. So not just a big blob representing a country, but where is the school you're building or where is the road you're helping to reconstruct or the, or the health cl clinic you've established. And looking at um, how um, aid agencies give aid at subnational level and how well that maps onto where the poor are within those countries. And the reason we did this is that, one, we wanted to make use of this new geocoded data, which is you know, exciting new data to, um, to uh, analyze. But also, back to this earlier point, that as the number of poor people, of extreme poor in the world reduces, the need for targeting will only grow. And we can't, we can't be happy and satisfied saying, well, we'll give we'll give uh, money to fairly poor countries and that will do. We're going to have to get more specific, more granular. And we, so when we did this, we did this analysis just um, for the World Bank because the World Bank did a fantastic job in geocoding their, their aid data before anyone else. Actually, other donors have been a bit slow in getting around to this. So that's, a, that's a, my shout out to anyone from an aid agency who's listening. Um, and what we found is that there is scope for much, much stronger targeting than is currently going on. If, if donors are really serious about targeting the poor, there's, there, there could be big changes in, in the way resources are allocated to more efficiently target the poor. That said, I don't think it's a straightforward conclusion that all donors should be um, targeting like crazy because one wants to, well, for a start, once one wants to uh, target in a coordinated fashion, right? If there are, there's no point targeting independently of what the government itself the beneficiary um, government itself is doing, what other donors in the country are doing. Can't have every donor just focusing on the poorest little district in the country because that clearly doesn't um, make a lot of sense. But also, I'm not sure if, we, if we've if we yet established what good targeting really means. I mean, should we be targeting the areas where there are the most poor people or the highest poverty rate? Should we, should we be targeting the places where there are the most poor people, where the depth of poverty is greatest? Mm. These kind of questions don't have obvious answers. What they really call for is greater dialogue, within the de development community to think about how we want to allocate our resources if we're very serious about this goal of ending extreme poverty. And so I, that's what we, we've, we've, we've been trying to prompt through our work. Um, but it's uh, the time when, we could, when, when donors could say, well, we target, you know, we target poor countries, so therefore we do, good a, job, we do a good job on, on um, targeting poverty, I think is over. Before we end, I want to turn briefly to Poverty in the developed world in the United States and Great Britain and other places, yeah. and recognizing that it's nowhere near the same yeah. uh, depth or scope yeah. as extreme poverty in places like Africa and right. other places around the world. Are, are there any lessons that you're learning about uh, poverty eradication for the developing world that can be applied to the developed world? Um, I haven't done a lot of work on the interventions, but I have, uh, which might be. Um, which might be um, applicable um, from, uh, sort of say, the global south to the global north or, or vice versa. But I have done a little bit of work recently looking at, um, at how, how poverty compares in, 
in the West and particularly the US compared to in the developing world? Because it's a really in, it's a really interesting question. So you may have seen a few weeks ago, probably around a month ago now, the Census Bureau um, released some new data um, confirming that poverty in the US has remains high um, following the recession. You know, it it it, it spiked. Uh, during the recession, and it, and it remains very high at around fifteen percent. And the other thing which the result showed was that there are a lot of there are a lot of families in the U.S. who are living very far below the line. So I think six percent of the I think it was six point six percent of the population of the U.S. is living on less than half of the poverty line. So that gets that depth point we talked about earlier. But as we discussed, the poverty line in the U.S. is drawn much higher. So even if there's depth of poverty, well, it doesn't look so bad compared to the developing world, right? Um, also, there's some interesting research which um, um, by a, a couple of researchers, Luke Schaefer and Catherine Eden are the names, and they looked at poverty in the U.S. and they tried to they they wanted to apply an international poverty line to really highlight how how extreme the cases of deprivation are in some parts of the U.S. And so they they tried to apply this the two a two dollar poverty line to the U.S. and say, is there anyone anyone in the U.S. living on any on less than two dollars? And when when they um, looked at the data, looking at income measures of poverty, not consumption, you know, I've talked a lot earlier um, about consumption, but using income measures, they found that there were millions of people living on less than $2 of income a day per person, which is inc you know, incredibly low. And what they found was that the reason for this is that is one, one of the main reasons for this is that the, is there's been reforms in welfare in the US which have uh, resulted in welfare no longer being provided less and less in the form of cash and more and more in, in the form of sort of in-kind uh, transfers, right? So um, so these families have very little cash income, but they, they're able to consume at a higher level usually because, they, because of the various benefits they receive. So there's this sort of interesting um, sort of uh, disparity, if you like, between the... the, the, the um, the living standards these these um, households are able to achieve in terms of what they consume every day, um, but at the same time seeing very little cash in their hands, which gives them very little choice in terms of what they uh, what they can do. And so we we've, we we a few colleagues of mine here um, and myself we we read this paper, really interested in it, and uh, looking more at these findings to try and understand how this relationship between income and consumption which is, uh, as I say, quite strange in the US, how it might, how it might compare to the relationship in the developing world. Um, because we, you know, our, our hunch is that in the developing world, e um, even if you, it, well, firstly, income and consumption tend to, while they're different, they, they tend, to, tend to move around fairly closely together. So if you've got low income, you've got low consumption because there aren't, re there aren't safety nets there to help people in the first place. Um, but we're, but we're interested in seeing how that relationship might have changed over time. And I would say that I, I, I want to make the point that the fact that there are families in the US who have so little cash income, I mean, that alone might affect their welfare because it gives them, as I say, it gives them, it leaves them in a real bind when they, when, when they have certain needs, which they just can't, um, they can't, they just can't meet. But I would, I, I think you're right that the welfare, which I think is best captured through um, measures of consumption, that by a, a, a reliable welfare measure, poverty in the U.S. is is not as not as bad as it is in the developing world, but it is it is it is surprisingly severe, and and the 
the the fact that the 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 poor families in the US often have so little income is um is a is a really striking phenomenon and one worth um, trying to understand more in terms of its implications for the well-being of those families. So in the next few weeks I'm going to be doing more research on this and trying to understand a bit more about what's going on here. Lawrence, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time and, and look forward to checking out that additional research you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great fun. To learn more about Lawrence and his research, visit the Development Assistance and Governance Initiative on brookings.edu.